Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Good morning. Hey, I got to take something back. Last week I talked about Life Magazine and then People Magazine and then Us and then Self. And I said, you know, one of these days they're going to do a Me Magazine. Well, I was handed a copy of Me Magazine this week. (laughs) It's here. And uh, so now I got to revise that whole illustration. Now I'm waiting for I Magazine. That'll be the next one. Hey, this Wednesday night, we do invite you out. It'll be a simple family night. I just will love to sit on a stool, share my heart with you, talk about vision, past, present, future, and uh, have a great time. This morning, if you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, and I'm going to apologize a little bit in advance for this. You see, Verse 15 all the way through 20 is a paragraph. It's a solid string of thoughts. I was unable to make it through all of those verses. So today will be verse 15 only. It's just one of these passages that unless we grasp some of these details, it's going to be ambiguous as we move on. So it'll be a lot of foundation laying this morning in this single verse. There's only 24 words Uh, to this verse, but this is the verse we're going to look at only this morning, and uh, we'll develop more as we go along. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your grace that has brought us here this morning, because we believe that the Word of God does the work of God in the lives of the people of God. And we just now give you our hearts and our minds We pray, Lord, that you would speak, you would stimulate, Lord, our lives to holy, godly living as we are challenged and instructed from your word. These things we ask in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Just a moment ago, we put our hands out to someone and we shook the hand of a neighbor. We might have hugged them, but typically we'll shake hands. But do you know where that custom of shaking hands originated from? It was an ancient custom where people would prove to one another that they're not holding a weapon in their hands. It was originally a sign not of fellowship or of trust, but of distrust. Show me your hand. Let me grab your hand. Let me see you're not holding a sword or a spear. It means something different today, of course. It's a warm gesture. It's one of fellowship. The right hand of fellowship, it's called. Back in September of 1993, one of the world's most famous handshakes in modern history took place on the White House lawn between former Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin of Israel and former chairman of the PLO Yasser Arafat. They shook hands. Right there in the White House, on international news, it was a gesture of friendship. It was this hope that said there could be peace in the Middle East. In fact, Prime Minister Rabin on that day said, Enough of tears, enough of blood. Today we're going to give peace a chance. 
Great words. Great gesture. But you know the story. How long did that peace back in 93 last? Not even a week. Immediately as they heard about it in the Gaza Strip, people took to the streets rioting, saying, never will we have peace with Israel. Iran issued a statement that week, not surprisingly, calling that handshake a treacherous step. So I guess what Golda Meir, the former Prime Minister of Israel, once said is correct. You can't shake hands when you have a clenched fist. So, question, will there ever be peace over in the Middle East? Really, that is the question of modern times. That has been the question of late. And some people would say, no, there can never be peace in the Middle East unless unless a strong peace treaty fortified by a strong military leader does it. A few years ago, an Israeli went on record, I have the quote, he said, I will trust the devil if he can bring peace to the Middle East. It's a frightening thing to say, especially since Jesus said, I've come in my Father's name and you didn't receive me. Another will come in his name, him you will receive. Okay, let's shift from shaking hands to a show of hands. Show of hands. How many here have ever been broken into or vandalized? Raise your hands up. Okay, now keep those hands up and just from look around at, at how many. That's amazing. You can put your hands down. I noticed some of you kind of hung your head during that time and you didn't raise your hand and maybe you were the ones that broke in. To, uh, Low blow. Strike that. (laughs) The first time I was broken into, I was single, living in an apartment. Somebody broke into my apartment and stole my 12-string guitar. Yeah. (laughs) Second time I was vandalized was in a house up here in the Northeast Heights. Somebody broke into my garage and stole two mountain bikes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Third time I was vandalized was in Southern California not long ago. Somebody pulled a prank on my son's car, went a little too far, damaged the car, damaged our home. Now, those that raised their hands and said it happened to us, how did you feel when you came home? Violated. You felt vulnerable. You felt perhaps sick to your stomach. People have told me that. It was especially hard when the police on one of those occasions said, it seems by the nature of this crime that this was done by somebody that knows you. So the thought is, you mean somebody that I shook hands with, turned around and used those hands to vandalize? Well, Jesus, on a couple of occasions, referred to the temple in Jerusalem as my father's house. And still today, the Jews in Israel call the Temple Mount Har Habayit, or the mountain of the house, because that was where the house of God stood. That's what they call it. In verse 15, Jesus predicts a time when his father's house, the temple, will be vandalized. 
Now we're going to read that this morning. We're going to look at verse 15. I know it ties to more, and we'll look at that more next week. But I have a question. Did God ever give us a hint from something that happened historically in the past as a model or template for something that will happen in the future? Remember, Solomon once said, there's nothing new under the sun. Does that also apply to prophecy? That's what we want to see in part this morning. So let's look at Matthew chapter 24, the 15th verse. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Those are 24 English words, 20 words in the original language of Greek. But in that single verse, there are three slices of revelation. One, Jesus points to the past, the destructions of the past. And then he turns and looks to the devastation that is coming in the future, while at the same time calling for a decision to be made in the present. Those are the three things we're going to look at this morning. First of all, Jesus is obviously going back. Because he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. He's going back and appealing to scripture that Daniel wrote. It's interesting to me that Jesus called Daniel a prophet. I say it's interesting because today there's a lot of liberal scholars that say Daniel wasn't a prophet. He was a poser. Nobody could write in advance the things that Daniel predicted would happen Because the sheer odds of that happening, we just don't buy. So there must have been a guy who wrote after all those things were fulfilled, but just said he wrote about it before. So they would call him Daniel the Poser. Jesus referred to him as Daniel the Prophet, thus authenticating the scripture that Daniel wrote as being the Word of God. Which brings up this issue, and it's very important. What did Jesus think about the Bible? What did Jesus think about Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, Nehemiah? All of those books that were penned. Do you think Jesus thought, well, there's just a bunch of old guys that wrote their opinions and they thought they heard from God, but they're contradictory and irrelevant and outdated? Hardly. Jesus Christ said this in Matthew chapter 5, Don't think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, I came to fulfill. And assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot, not one tittle will pass from the law till all these things are fulfilled. That's what he believed about the Bible. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he didn't say, there's this verse of scripture, I hope it's right. He said, it is Written. That's authoritative. In John chapter 10, he spoke about the revelation given through David, and he said, and the scripture cannot be broken. So Jesus didn't look back at the Old Testament Bible and say, well, it's mystical and it's mythical and it's allegorical. He said it's literal, it's historical, it's reliable. Several examples of this. Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 and 5, Jesus affirms the creation account in Genesis with Adam and Eve. 
In Matthew 24, verse 37 through 39, Jesus affirms a worldwide flood during the time of Noah. In John chapter 6, Jesus speaks of manna coming down from heaven. He speaks about Sodom and Gomorrah event as a literal event. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus speaks about a guy by the name of Jonah swallowed by a great fish. That's what Jesus said about the Bible. Here's my point. You cannot take Jesus seriously unless you take the Bible seriously. It is nonsense for someone to say, Yeah, Jesus was cool. I like what he had to say. All those red letters are neat. But I don't believe the rest of what all those guys wrote about. You cannot separate the two. Because you can't say, I embrace Jesus who embraced all of those things that I deny. You can't do it. Because if Jesus was wrong about Jonah, and Jesus was wrong about the flood, and Jesus was wrong about creation, how can you trust him for anything else? How are you going to trust him when he says, I can get you from earth all the way to heaven if you just trust me? How? You you can't. And if you try to live that way without the authority of the Bible, well, you're going to be like that little village over in Germany. They had a central clock tower called by the Germans Glockenspiel. And everybody would set their time by the Glockenspiel, the, the central clock in the middle of town. Well, one day that glass that housed the clock was broken. And somebody looked at his watch as he walked by and he said, you know, I think that clock must be wrong. And he changed the glockenspiel. An hour later, a gal walked by and said, hey, my watch is different from that clock. I think that clock must be wrong and she changed it and somebody else changed it and later on somebody else changed it. So it was constantly changing. Thus, eventually, no one knew the correct time. What happened? The clock lost authority. People didn't know the future. The Bible, the Word of God, is appealed to by Jesus as reliable. So Jesus, looking back at the destruction of the past, which I'll explain in a moment, makes an appeal to Scripture. Second, he makes an appeal to history. Notice what he calls it. When you see the abomination of desolation. What is that? Well, the abomination of desolation is a term, it's a technical Old Testament term spoken of by Daniel in three places. Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, and Daniel 9, verse 27. All have language about the abomination of desolation. What does it mean? Well, the word abomination, delugma in Greek, originally means to be nauseated, sick to your stomach. Now, that was interesting to me because I did read and I've heard accounts of people who said, you know, when I was vandalized and I saw my house, it made me sick to my stomach. Well, God says there is an event called the abomination, this nauseating event that causes desolation. Something that would happen to God's house... That would be an abomination. Usually that refers in the Old Testament to some idolatry, some pagan idolatrous event that brings a desolation. In other words, it will empty the temple of true worshipers and make it desolate. 
When Daniel spoke about the abomination of desolation from his vantage point hundreds, thousands of years ago, all of that was yet future to him. He said there's coming an event called the abomination of desolation where he said this, the taking away of the daily sacrifices will occur in Jerusalem. That means in the temple they would have sacrifices. Some abominable event is going to happen that causes the sacrifices to stop and it will be replaced by something idolatrous and nauseating. Okay. Did you know that's already happened? It has. Once. It's going to happen again, but let me me tell you the history. Because when Jesus said these words, the disciples, being Jews, knowing their history, would have thought back to this. A long time ago, there was a guy named Alexander who thought he was really great. <laughs> he conquered the world. He had a dream that was unfulfilled. His dream was to take the entire conquered world and make them Greek in speech and Greek in culture, Greek in custom. That part of his dream he never accomplished. He conquered the world, but he died at age 31, I believe, in Babylon. And when he died, he decided he would give his four commanding generals control over his world. They divided it up. Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, Seleucus. Those are the names of his four generals who took portions of Alexander's empire. That fourth guy, Seleucus, controlled Syria and what was called then Asia. Now, a a whole host of kings came from Seleucus, called the Seleucid dynasty or the Syrian dynasty. The eighth Seleucid king was a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, or actually Antiochus IV, brother of Cleopatra. He thought, I'm going to do what Alexander didn't do. I'm going to finish the task. I'm going to make everyone this beautiful Greek culture, and I'm going to make sure it happens in my neck of the woods. Well, he gave himself a name. He called himself, ready, Theos Antiochus Theos Epiphaneus, which means Antiochus, the illustrious one, God incarnate. Humble. (laughs) I am God in human flesh. He thought he was the embodiment of Zeus. Well, he forced people into this system where he was God, but there was one group of people that he could not convince. And who were they? The Jews. When he found out that the people in Jerusalem would not bow to his system, he decided to take 20,000 Syrian troops, surround the city of Jerusalem, He killed 80,000 Jews. He took 40,000 of them captive. He marched into the temple, stopped the daily sacrifices in Jerusalem, took them away, dedicated the temple to Zeus. He now, he said, is the embodiment of Zeus, to be worshipped as Zeus. Put up a huge image in the temple, in the holy place of Zeus. And then Antiochus took a pig had it slaughtered on the altar of sacrifice. You know anything about Judaism, there's one animal they don't handle well. And that's the swine. He knew that. He took a pig and sacrificed it. 
forced the Jewish priests to eat pork, took the juices of the pig, spread them all over the temple, and took the swine's blood and put it all over the walls of that holy place. When that happened, the Jews of that era thought of what Daniel wrote about in chapter 11, verse 31, and they said, this is it. This is the abomination that causes desolation. It emptied the temple of all of its true worshipers, and now it's this abominable pagan place. That happened in 168 B.C. Done. It's historic. It was the abomination that causes desolation. Okay, so Jesus is reaching back, appealing to Daniel the prophet, speaking about a finished historical event, but after talking about the destruction of the past, he really is talking about devastation in the future. Because notice the verse is cast more in the present tense, or in the future tense. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then... Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. That's future. He's taking a past event and saying, Okay, boys, listen, disciples, Jewish men, my followers, listen. This event did happen once, but you know what? It's going to happen again. What happened in the past, in a historic sense, is a template for what will happen in a prophetic sense. The destruction of the past will be a model for the devastation of the future. You follow so far? Okay, now let me complicate it just a little bit. When Daniel predicted the abomination of desolation, he predicted two, not one. And how do we know this? Well, Daniel chapter 11, the details are such that you could take history under Antiochus Epiphanes and you could match up piece after piece after piece. It's pretty obvious that that's what it was speaking about in Daniel 11. However, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, something we'll look at more in depth next week, to get it. It speaks of something that will happen during that last period of years, a seven-year period called the 70th week of Daniel. That is yet another event. So here's Jesus. Let's get it all back in perspective. Standing on the Mount of Olives saying, Daniel spoke about an abomination of desolation. You guys know it already happened under Antiochus. It's going to happen again. It's going to be far worse in the future. Now, just in case you're thinking, all right, what Jesus said was going to happen, happened in 70 A.D. when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. It's not accurate. What happened in 70 A.D., remember Jesus said this temple's coming down? It happened in 70 A.D.? That was the destruction of the temple. That was not an abomination of any kind of an image that desolated the temple of its worship. It was a destruction of the temple. And, no, this is not a modern invention or modern philosophy in the last 100 years by a group of dispensationalists. 
I don't know if you've ever heard any of that, but there's this idea that in the last hundred years, a guy named Darby and a few others came up with this new weird theology of the rapture of the church and of the Antichrist and the Great Tribulation, and they try to make it a modern invention. It is not. You could go all the way back to the second century and read Irenaeus, or to the third century and read Hillary, or to the 16th century and read Ferris, and all of these historical theologians will tell you that what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 15, is yet to come and will happen with a personal Antichrist to be introduced on the scene just before the end of the world. So it has historic precedent. Jesus is taking something from the past and saying it's going to happen in the future. Okay, that means something now to us. That means that a temple must be standing for verse 15 to happen in the future. How do we know that? Because Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, here it is, standing in the holy place. If you know about the temple, you know that the antechamber to the Holy of Holies was called the Holy Place. And in the New Testament, the term here, topo hagio, holy topography, has to do with that temple. There has to be a temple. So here's Jesus predicting an event that's going to come. They already know about it, but he's looking to the future and he said, the temple's coming down. He already said that. Now one stone's going to be left upon another. But there's going to be a future event called the abomination of desolation. And when you see it taking place in the holy place, it means there's got to be a temple. Well, we know that's true because we've read the rest of the New Testament. And Paul added more information. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, fourth verse. He predicts a coming man of sin the son of perdition, the Antichrist, and this is Paul's language, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. You go, whoa, that sounds a lot like what Antiochus Epiphanes did, but on a bigger scale. This is worldwide. Exactly. That's Paul. Then John gives us more information. You read the book of Revelation. He talks about a world ruler who makes a a collaborative community of ten nations on the earth. He sets himself up as that world monarch. He brings in another cohort called the false prophet. And in symbolic language, Revelation 13. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by signs which was granted him to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast. He was granted power to give breath to the image, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And a mark was given. And everyone, it says, on the face of the earth, rich, poor, small, great, was forced to take a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. In other words, a guy is coming down the pike. Man of sin, son of perdition, antichrist, you choose the term, there's over 50. This guy is going to reenact 
in a temple in Jerusalem what Antiochus Epiphanes did in 168 B.C. Question. How many of here have ever been to Israel? Raise your hands. Okay. Great. It means more of you got to come next time. You're thinking, not on your life am I going to Israel. Well, if you were there, you remember that when you stand on the Mount of Olives and you look toward Jerusalem, it's breathtaking. And you see this huge, flat, 36-acre complex known as the Temple Mount. And there's a golden dome atop of that mount. Not a temple. It's a mosque of sorts. It's where the Muslims believed Muhammad ascended into heaven, received the Koran, and came back down to the earth. So it's a holy place to the Muslims. It's also holy to the Jews because the temple once stood there. It's holy to the Christians because part of that same mountain to the north is called Calvary, where Jesus died. So it's the most contested, volatile, 36-acre parcel on earth. But there's no temple on it. Yet. Now, did you know that right now in Jerusalem there's an outfit called the Temple Institute? They're making plans to build the temple. Now, they've been doing this for years, but they've got blueprints, electrical diagrams, footings where they would dig. Everything's there. They have a Sanhedrin, they call it, a ruling body of elders. They've trained hundreds of young people in the Talmudic uh, schools, uh, how to do temple sacrifices, etc. They believe it is their God-given right to build the temple on the Temple Mount, and they will do it as soon as they're allowed. They have built the menorah for the temple. They've built several of the artifacts that will go in the temple. They're ready. They're ready to do exactly what they believe is their right to do. Now, of course... If you look on the other side, there's a group called Muslims who would not allow that to happen. You just can't march up to the Temple Mount and say, Excuse me, we'd like to build a temple here. That would mean World War III, potentially. They wouldn't say, Sure, go ahead and bulldoze the Dome of the Rock and build your temple. Not going to happen. Now let's complicate the issue a little further. Today on the Temple Mount, the Muslim authorities have recently shut down any Israeli archaeological digs under or immediately around the Temple Mount. But instead, they themselves are excavating underneath the Jewish Temple Mount, which is now under Muslim control, and they want to build, they say, underground mosques all underneath the Temple Mount. What they'd love to do is erase all evidence of a Jewish past completely. They've already bulldozed and taken out 13,000 tons of debris. Think of all the artifacts from the first and second temple period they've just tossed. And they're building these mosques underneath in the area of Solomon's stables today. Well, that has caused a problem, not only in Israel with the Jewish archaeologists who are up in arms, but it's caused a weakening of the infrastructure of the Temple Mount. And authorities say it could collapse at any moment. Which brings us to another issue. Now, it'll all tie together. Hold on just a moment. Where did the temple stand originally? Answer? Nobody knows. It was so totally destroyed, not one stone was left upon another. There's still debate as to where that temple originally stood. 
A lot of people will say, well, it was right there where that golden dome of the rock is. Others would say, can't be. Doesn't line up with the rest of the topography. A few years ago, Dr. Asher Kaufman, who was a physics professor at Hebrew University, did a number of studies. He says, I believe conclusively I can show you the foundation stones of the temple, the foundation outcroppings, that the original temple was 26 meters to the north of the present-day Muslim Dome of the Rock. So, this is what it means. Technically, I know not politically yet, but technically, you could have a Jewish temple, at the same time a Muslim shrine, on the same piece of real estate, just removed 26 meters. So you've got this mess going down with the excavations of part of the Temple Mount ready to fall. You've got that golden dome of the rock. And then you have this potential temple that is being ready to be built. Muslims don't want it. But could it be that things get so bad in the Middle East coming up, so bad between Jews and Arabs, that somebody's going to say, look, you guys, i got a plan for a peaceful solution. Things are going to have to heat up for that to happen. But I bring this up because there is an interesting prophecy in Revelation chapter 11 when John is given a measuring stick by an angel to measure the future temple in Jerusalem. But listen to it. The angel said to me, But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles to trample it for 42 months or three and a half years. Now, if you did build the temple where Kaufman says it stood, and you go 26 meters to the south where the Dome of the Rock is, that places it in the outer court, or the court of the Gentiles. It's just interesting enough to go, hmm, cool. Wow. It's happening. Especially when you realize when John wrote those words in Revelation, it was 95 AD, the temple in Jerusalem had been bulldozed for 25 years. There was no temple. He sees another temple, a future building. Then look at the tail end of verse 15. Whoever reads... Let him understand. Some versions of the Bible have those letters in red, as if Jesus spoke them. Some have them in black and in parentheses, as if it's an annotation by Matthew. Doesn't matter either way. Here's the point. It reinforces the fact that Jesus is not giving this warning to those disciples living at that time or that generation at all, but to a future generation who will not hear but read in print something written down in prophetic scripture, and they'll know what to do. And Jesus tells them what to do in the next few verses, which we'll look at next week. So, destruction from the past is a template for devastation in the future, but it brings us to a a brief but third final point, and that is a decision in the present. I draw your attention to the first word of verse 15. Therefore... And you know the rule by now. Whenever there's a therefore, you find out what it's there for. It's therefore a very important reason. It is to take a truth or a piece of information and make personal application. Because you know this is going to happen, therefore this is what you do because of it. Here's my point. 
in any section of biblical truth, we are confronted with a therefore, a point of decision. What am I going to do with this truth? For instance, the book of Romans. For 11 chapters, Paul lays the foundation of here's the wrath of God, here's the grace of God, here's the plan of God, here's the will of God. That's 11 chapters. Chapter 12, he turns a corner and he says, I beg you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice unto God. In other words, I gave you 11 chapters to build the foundation so that your response to that, the therefore, is you give yourselves wholly to God. You say, okay, well then, how does verse 15 apply to me? I'm not looking for the Antichrist or for the abomination of desolation. Glad you asked. And here it is. I see what Daniel predicted. What Daniel predicted happened accurately, historically. I hear what Jesus predicted, and though it hasn't happened yet, I see enough stuff on the horizon and right now, contemporaneously, that it could happen soon. Therefore, therefore, I must decide if I'm going to let biblical truth and biblical principles govern my life or not. Therefore, I'm going to have to decide if I'm willing to trust Jesus Christ and what He said about the future or not. And here's my question to you in closing. A God this accurate and this detailed, can you trust with your life? A God who spoke in such incredible, minute detail, predictive prophecy, and it happened, can you trust with your job, with your spouse, with your children, with your financial situation? Don't you find it a bit ironic that we Christians sometimes can trust God so much for prophecy, but not for today? God's going to get me to heaven. Prophecy's being fulfilled. I don't think I'm going to make it this week. (laughs) That's kind of weird. If he can control that, the rest is peanuts, duck soup, easy, breezy. We had to be like the little boy riding that train. It was a summer evening. The train was packed. Thunderheads on the horizon were looming. Soon it turned into a violent storm with rain and lightning and thunder, and everybody aboard that train was a little jittery, white-knuckling all the way. But there was one little boy on that train, calm, whistling, playing with his toys, and a man noticed him and said, You know, we're all nervous because of the weather. You don't seem to be nervous. Don't you think you ought to be? The little boy said, Nah, my daddy's the engineer of this train. It's a good lesson we can learn from that little boy. Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Korea, problems in Europe. Homeland Security elevates yellow, orange, red. Harder to fly. There might be cells of terrorists in our country. The borders are weak. Should we fret? No. Our dad's the engineer. Not only only did he know it was going to happen, he told us it was going to happen. He wrote about it. 
we have it right here. So we can go, not, but, ah. God's good. He's got it all in control. And friend, if you haven't trusted Jesus Christ personally, I know of no better time to do it than today. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.